You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is the uh, award-winning fantasy and sci-fi writer, Adrian Tchaikovsky. He is the author of the Shadows of the Apt and Edens of the Fall series, as well as a number of other books, including at least two standalone novels, the 2016 novel Children of Time. Actually, I say it's standalone, but I gather there is now a a sequel also, Children of Ruin, which I haven't yet read, Um, and um, The Doors of Eden, which was published, I believe, this year, 2021? Uh, Last year. Last year. And he's also, Children of Time um, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. And I gather in that particular year, in 2016, there were a record number of entries uh, for the award. So it was an, a special honour, Adrian, that you won that. Yes, it, yes, um, it really was. And uh, and I gather it's also been optioned for a film? Uh, it was optioned for a film. That was quite a while ago, because um, mm. obviously it was out in 2015-16. Um, um, there are, there has been further interest, but the, the option that got all the news at the time has, has lapsed. Uh, I think it, well, I, I, I think it would be an absolutely amazing film. Yeah, I think it would be, a, I think it would be a great film. I think it would be the film that av- of something like Avatar ought to have been, but definitely <laughs> wasn't. <laughs> the sort of thinking man's Avatar. It would be interesting, it'd be interesting to see how people would bring it to the screen, given that large chunks of it have no human characters at all. Mm. Yeah, it would have to be, would have to be done with CGI and things, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, But there are some other difficulties in portraying the kinds of consciousnesses that you, that, that feature in, in children of time, but let's not get ahead of ourselves too much. Um, Let's begin as I usually... It's nothing to what's in Children of Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, woo. Um, okay, I look forward to that. Let's, uh, let's start as I usually do with uh, uh, writers, um, with a passage um, that you've chosen for us. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit from one of the interlude sections of The Doors of Eden. Um, these are little kind of thought experiments about... Um, how evolution might have gone differently. So, this is not your world, though some twists of its fate may seem familiar. Here, in these Silurian seas, the fish still look armoured and alien, and they have good reason to go kitted out in mail. This is a story about top predators. The humble scorpion relatives that lived on the seafloor in the shadow of the orthocones have stepped up their game in this timeline. Some are tiny, some bigger than you are, They are fierce active hunters, keen of eye and equipped with a Swiss army knife of tools for shelling fish and mollusks. In your world, they had their time and were gone before they might trouble your nightmares, but this is not your world. This is theirs. There are metrics of success that would place ants, beetles or bacteria at the top. However, we are all naturally biased to value large, fierce animals, those that can adapt to change and exploit opportunities. The Eurypterids, sea scorpions, are all of that, and their realm is literal, shore-based. They live both sides of the tidal divide, emerging from their burrows to fish the waters when those are flooded, and sieve the sand when the waters soak away. Soon, land becomes an interesting place too, with a more congenial atmosphere on the back of the first crude forests. Other sea beasts move inland, not least to escape these damned scorpion monsters that patrol the beach like murderous border guards. Boggy swamplands where new plant life has turned mere dust into mud have become prehistoric prairies. They feed roving herds of snails and slithery early tetrapods. The Eurypterids follow on their ever stronger legs, progressing from a dragging crawl to a spider quick scuttle, their appalling cutlery drawer of arms held high for death and dismemberment. We would recognise them as the dominant animal group of their world, 
but for a long time they are beasts of very little brain. Sometimes ferocity is enough. In the Permian days of mass extinction, this timeline changes gear. Countless species of Eurypterids vanish. Of the survivors, one is of particular note. The descendant of the Eurypterids has colonized much of the world, but only in the narrowest of strips. And now the world has contracted to a single continent. This provides far less in the way of beachfront real estate for this ambitious predator. As their world shrinks, their populations become denser. They live in submerged burrows side by side, jostling elbows and clashing claws. There are fights, and this becomes a real threat to the species because they are spectacularly well-equipped to tear apart large shelled animals, most definitely including each other. But one subspecies learns to live with its neighbours. Its members negotiate with one another, assert dominance or back down. They recognise individuals, assess their fitness, remember the results of previous clashes. Their brains become more ornate, shaped by memory creation and decision-making. Soon enough, the strong amongst them are not merely driving off the weak, but co-opting them for more efficient hunts, sharing morsels from their kills to feed their new minions. As the world recovers, they are the one species to have thrived through the great dying. Appropriately, they are the greatest killers. Their coastal communities spread, and for another 50 million years, they are always on the point of becoming simply predator, losing the fragile meniscus of society that necessity imposed on them. A dominant culture emerges. By now they are far more terrestrial than aquatic, breeding on land and laying hard eggs, letting their hatchlings battle for survival in the nursery pens. They're not scorpion-shaped anymore, their tails curl under, hunched over vulnerable lung-like membranes, but their backs are still a column of armoured segments. Stalked eyes bob and flick over a melange of appendages that are limbs and mouthparts and weapons, blades, pincers, fangs, spears and clubs in constant chittering motion. They are brightly patterned by nature, and their leaders paint their shells while warriors go drab. They are a visual species and understand the use of camouflage. By the time the dinosaurs of your world are glancing anxiously up into the sky in case that dot has grown larger since yesterday, there is only one Eurypterid way of life across all the globe, a fierce one. The territoriality that once marked individuals is now espoused by communities. Each clawed polity knows only two states, war today or, pre or preparation for war tomorrow. A fight for resources is subsumed into a fight for us against them. Marvellous, thank you. Um, so since since we've begun here um, with the alternative worlds, the alternative evolutionary scenarios which you um, of which you present basically one in Children of Time, one particularly mm -hmm. odd and alien and compelling one and um, and and in um, the Doors of Eden, you present an entire series of these parallel worlds. Um, let's uh, let's start, I guess, from um, from the idea of worlds in which insects or spiders are the dominant organism. Um, what first attracted you you to that kind of scenario, and what types of Things, what types of stories are you able to tell that you are not able to tell with um, with human dominant worlds? I mean, I guess to take those in reverse order, um, I try not to look at when I'm looking at evolution, uh, especially and uh, whether it's sort of an alien world or alternative Earth evolution. I try not to look at a default scenario of there being humans at all. I'm, I was very, very uh, taken with a lot of the, um, the thinking espoused in uh, Stephen Jay Gould's Wonderful Life about the idea that if you ran the experiment of evolution again, you absolutely no guarantee that the same creatures would come to the top. Yeah, the camp, the, uh, the sort of the mishmash of the um, Cambrian could give very, very different um, results you might not get uh, chordates or vertebrates at all, let alone anything that resembled a human at the end of the day, um, which is basically, I mean, the whole of Doors of Eden is kind of that thought experiment run multiple times. And um, I mean, I, I give Gould a name check and acknowledgement, I think. Um, yeah, yes, I was actually, as I was reading, I, I was thinking of his descriptions of the Burgess Shale. Um, and your writing seems in many places quite, uh, indebted is the wrong word, but um, uh, I, reminiscent. I think indebted is an, in, is, is in, an entirely reasonable word to use. Ah, I mean, that, okay. that book was yeah. an enormous um, influence on me. And just the, 
because I, I mean, I had I had absolutely no idea of the Burgess Shell fauna before I read Gould and his just his his description of all the various weird and wonderful things there, and then the second part of the book where he does sort of talk about the whole thought experiment and where things might have gone and the general principle. I mean, I am um, there's um there's an idea called the philanthropic theory. Um, which comes in various flavors, but basically comes down to the idea that the universe was always going to produce something basically like a human being. And I cannot stress how much I do not subscribe <laughs> to the, to this theory. So the idea that you could get a recognizable intelligence from all sorts of different branches of, um, earth evolution. I mean, let alone anything that turns up in another world. Um, is very near and dear to me, and I I enjoy playing with it. Whether we you know, sometimes whether it's the focus of the book, like Doors of Eden, and sometimes where it's just stuff going on in the background, like um, some of my kind of other planets work, like um, Expert Systems uh, Brother, for example. But um, the sec to answer the second part of your question, I really like bugs, um, <laughs> and that's kind of. It, it's 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 a it's as simple as that, but that's that's the root of it. I I have always liked above all. Sort of, I like invertebrates and especially I like arthropods, spiders, insects, all of that sort of thing. And so that's that is where I naturally go. And it's also, frankly, although you get the occasional kind of insect alien in science fiction, it's a relatively untenanted space compared mm. to dealing with humans or uh, or human approximate things. So it gives me a lot of room to play around without feeling I'm necessarily stepping on other people's toes. Well, one of the things that I noticed is that on some of the alternative worlds, certainly in Doors of Eden, there is intelligence without sentience. Um, I think even without sentience and certainly without a kind of uh, individualism. I wonder if that's if that was one of the things that you were consciously thinking of exploring within your novels um yes i mean i think when when you start when you're using especially when you're using um insects as your palette it's something that's going to come up i mean I, in children of time it turns up because of the uh the spiders that are the focus of the book share their world with a, a kind of an uplifted species of ant and the ant's intelligence has no kind of consciousness to it it is a it's 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 described as kind of working as, as an enormous insanely complicated difference engine that's that solves problems to replicate itself but there's yeah there is no i in ant so to speak where there is in the spider um and a several of the worlds in doors of, in doors of eden look at this as well i mean there is a there's a, a kind of a a communal insect um based uh, evolutionary path there and there's, a, there's also um, a communal spider um species turning up as a footnote in one of the other one of the other worlds um because this is something we we've that has it that certainly has arisen and produced very very complex um intelligence approximate behaviors multiple times in just purely in the earth we know i mean it's several times in insects and several times independently in spiders and it they and there is a common pattern so it seems very likely that very plausible that this might have been the dominant kind of um, sophisticated behavior model for the earth had things gone slightly differently. Yeah, you, a lot of the alternative worlds um, that you talk about in Doors of Eden, so um, just to explain to listeners, Doors of Eden is a, um, the main narrative is interspersed with tales about alternate worlds. Um, and those tales are, are relevant to the main narrative because, um, without giving away too many spoilers, the book is about, um, a breakdown in the barriers between parallel universes. And in these parallel universes are different earths, uh, in which, on which life has evolved in contrasting ways, um, with different, uh, dominant species. But in almost all those descriptions, I think maybe in all, um, the one of the main things you're describing is the development of intelligence. What are the mechanisms by which a species becomes intelligent? And I was wondering what you think of as, as 
being the defining characteristics of intelligence um how how you think of intelligence um and the the the, the particular this is this is something that's particularly tricky because my basic assumptions took a bit of a knock with children of ruin because uh, children of ruin a lot of it is about octopuses uh octopuses mm. basically don't do any of the things i'd kind of thought you'd needed to do to be smart um so a lot of the a lot of the thing you see in Doors of Eden is the development of sociability, um, mm, because mm. one of the things that, that does seem to be the case is where you have a social species, or even a species that's kind of enforcedly social because they they live in close proximity to their neighbours. Um, it gives a great you you require a much greater complexity of behaviour because you have to deal with individuals and dealing with individuals, remembering who is who, remembering who. You can be, basically who you can beat in a fight, who you can bully, and who you need to avoid is very complicated, and that that seems to me to be a a logical early sort of leg up towards any kind of um, sentience. Purely because you've got at some point you need a theory of mind. You've got to have some idea of this individual is like this, and therefore they will do this if I do this, and that's effectively very high level thinking. Um, so, uh, and what I mean, one of the in the section I, I, I read about the um, the sea scorpions, I'm basing a lot of that on mantis shrimps, which are not particularly sociable, but they live in very tight packed colonies and they are very capable of killing each other, and therefore they have developed a really quite sophisticated um, way of essentially getting on with their neighbors so that their fights are kept to a minimum which means they have to recognize their neighbors and assess them and so forth and so on. At the same time, you then find mantis shrimps are very good at problem solving. Although in, in, in general, there, there, there's quite a bit of, um, I mean, reading, reading um, Peter Godfrey Smith's recent Metazoa book, there's quite a lot you can get out of crustaceans and similar arthropods that you wouldn't necessarily think for their kind of the size of their brains. Um, but, um, so that's sociability. I mean, something you, we see a lot in, especially we see it in birds and we see it a lot in, in mammals is where you get creatures living as a group. That, that's a whole, effectively, it's, it's, it's like an extra dimension in a, in almost like in a, uh, length, width, breadth sort of dimension to all of the thinking they have to do because that thinking has to take into account what other, their, what their neighbors may do. Um, and then of course you have octopuses, which are insanely, intelligent very very capably intelligent and very very antisocial and also live very short lives none of which we would logically think would would select for that kind of level of intelligence that they have but they obviously have it and in fact we one of the things peter godfrey, godfrey smith um you know as you can tell is one of my sort of favorite writers for research these days um wrote about in his other minds is the the rare kind of situations you get where octopi octopuses are living in close proximity and they do interact and they have you know these very prickly relationships with their neighbors but they're obviously more than capable of doing it when they need to um i mean the other thing the other thing what's well, something that doesn't get talked about very much but it's interesting from, to me because it applies to octopuses and it applies to the portiered spiders um, that I deal with, and it applies to humans and to a lot of other animals that are, that are we think, feel are intelligent is is not being the top, not being the top predator. So not like the sea scorpions, but being somewhere in the middle. Because it's it seems to me if you're if you're something that is both a predator and also simultaneously prey for something else, that x that doubling of demands on you with regards to how you react to how you interact with your environment and what you need to kind of plan for and think about is probably also quite a good kickstart to more complex cognition and more complex sort of foresight and problem solving and all those other kind of forerunners of um, what we would think of as actual intelligence. Hmm. How does, um, oh, how, how shall I phrase this? Um, one of the other things that, one of the other themes that comes up in relation to this in your books is, of course, artificial intelligence. So in Children of Time, one of the characters uploads his consciousness into the ship's computer um, to try to take charge of the colony that way. Um, there's also a world uh, in Doors of Eden, and it's one of the, it becomes a kind of significant, um, has a significant role to play in the novel in which their 
appear to be no uh, biological beings left, but it's a world of a giant network of um, a, a, a giant host of networked computers. Mm. And you also have, um, I haven't read this book, but I've only read um, Children of Time and uh, The Doors of Eden. But um, you also have a novel, Shards of Earth, which I was just reading the synopsis, the plot synopsis, and it sounds as though it has a kind of Battlestar Galactica-like theme, i.e. <laughs> humans, humans built this race of, um, of artificial beings to, def- uh, well, it's a, it, here it departs from Battlestar Galactica, to defend them from an attack by aliens. And once the attack is over, um, those artificial beings are destroyed and there's only a few left and one of them appears to be your protagonist. Maybe I, is, is that a reasonable synopsis or am I com- confused? It's, um, so with Shards of Earth, it's not like that because though they are, um, they are surgically adult, uh, adapted humans in that, ah, uh, as the okay. injuries. So there are, there is also weird, I mean, because it's me and I can't really stop doing this. There's also a, a kind of a species of, <laughs> of c- uh, c- cybernetic colonial insects, which were also <laughs> put together by humans during the war and which later kind of secede and form their own kind of separate, um, separate faction in interstellar politics, um, which are called the hivers. And they have, they, they play various roles and are in fact various characters in the, in the book, but it's, um, I mean, Child, Child, so Shard of Earth is more of a space opera. And so I'm, I'm not looking at the science in the same kind of way as I am in some of my earlier books. It's, it's more to do with the, um, the action and the, and the actual, um, the incidents. Mm, so it's more, it's more socio-political. Yes. In that yes. sense. Yes. It's, it's, it's big space politics and, um, battles <laughs> because I wanted to write some space battles and I hadn't, didn't get to do it really much before. So uh, uh, I do want to get onto this, but first I wanted to ask you about your feelings about the singularity. Um, do you think it's imminent that there will be um, a greater than human level intelligent AI? And is that a prospect that uh, frightens you? Um, is that an existential risk that we should be concerned about? Um there's something I've talked about with a couple of other guests, and I'm interested in your your take. Um, so greater than human level AI is a really problematic phrase because technically we have greater than human level AI. My mm. computer can do sums much faster than me. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have AI that actually, as far as anyone can work out, thinks in any way the same as a human. So it's not... Effect, effectively, it, it will be a bit, it's a bit like trying to say, well, who is best? This, this, um, sprinter or this pole vaulter. You've got to choose one of these people to be best at, at athletics. And it obviously, do, the, um, the, the types of thinking, so to speak, are in, seem to be quite, quite different between the way, say, a neural network works. And obviously, there also, there are various different types of artificial intelligence, of course. There are, or an expert system in that sense, um, and, a, and a biological mind. Um, so on that base, I don't think that there's not going to be a singularity quite in that sense. There may well be an expert system that can, uh, perform in a very human way, um, you know, far, far beyond any kind of expectations of the Turing test. I mean, if you look at things like, um, personal assistant programs like Siri, they're very, they're getting very good. Um, at being sufficiently human-like to chat to, that doesn't mean that they know they're chatting. That just means that they are very good at following a series of instructions that makes it seem to us that they're chatting. And if you look at the old Eliza um, work that was done years and years back with an, an artificial therapist program, um, which of course gets a bit of a shout out in Children of Time, um, you don't actually need a very sophisticated program for that because we will do all the work if you give us half the half the chance because we really want to be able to interact with things. We will we will make up more than half the distance towards any system that it seems to be trying to talk to us. Mm. Um, mm. As to, I mean, 
as to whether I feel it's a great threat to our existence, um, so artificial stupidity is a great threat to our existence. So if you give um, a huge amount of responsibility to a badly programmed artificial system that then, you know, and it's, I mean, the classic thing is if you tell us that, you know, you, you give a thing ultimate power over Earth's manufacturing and say, we really need paperclips. And so it does nothing but make paperclips and everyone starves to death or gets turned into paperclips. Um, that's obviously terrible. And it's entirely possible because the problem is the gap between what an artificial, what a, I shouldn't call them artificial intelligence because it would, to me, that's, that's still the kind of the, the science fiction thinking machine rather than what we've actually got. But um, that sort of the difference between what that sort of system can do and what people who might be trying to throw a lot of money at people to give them a system think it can do is enormous. There is a huge um, sort of understanding gap between those those two things. And therefore, you have the real danger of someone saying, well, hey, let's have this system to recognize people's faces. That can't go wrong. Computers, computers are infallible. And for various reasons, no one's ever tried it with a uh, face that's not white, for example. I mean, that would be terrible. I can't imagine that, that happening in the real world. Um, so, they, I mean, essentially, yes, that sort of thing could completely destroy us, but it would destroy us for, because of human error. It wouldn't destroy us because it's Skynet. Um, if we were to create a genuine singularity-level artificial intellect, I don't have that kind of existential dread about it. Um, uh, or, or for that matter, as I th- suspect, it's probably more likely if one was to arise incidental to whatever we were actually doing with it, um, which I think is pro- I don't think we're likely to create one by trying, but we might create one just because we make very complex systems. Um, if such a thing is even possible, which I, you know, is very up in the air, um, I mean, I am very cynical, and the thing I'm mostly cynical about is people, not, um, not computers. Like I say, it's hu- human error will give us monstrous killer uh, computers that will destroy the world. It won't be the, won't be the computers deciding to do it. Um, there are absolutely people who are very, very vehement about the threat that would be posed by an entity that is very, very distant from um, the baseline human that cares nothing for them, views them as resources, has nothing, has no kind of aims in common, and at the same time has vast amounts of power and influence um, over how everything in the world works. Um, I mean, to me, I agree that would be a terrible thing, but we've got those, and they're called megacorporations and sort of, you know, tech billionaires and so forth like that. Um, those things exist in the world. Um, and yes, they're terrible, terrible things. I don't think an, an artificial intelligence will be any worse than that. Um, what, I would, what I do feel is that an artificial intelligence, because of the sort of apparent lateral thinking that expert systems can do when asked to solve problems, might well be able to solve the problems we've got in the way that we can't or won't. Mm. I mean, it's the, at the end of the day, if all the, yeah. you, know, you get to the point where if the, all the king's men have been able to solve it, you've got to uh, you've got to step aside and give the horses a chance. Yeah, I, I mean, a slightly related, I guess, segue is that you have a lot of networked um, intelligence systems i'm not sure if that's the right way to put it but um a lot of both both biological and um and technological linked intelligences and here's mm. a biological one i'm reading a little passage here from um the doors of eden tiny passage um on a from a spider world um Around the equator, a great fern and cycad forest, where dwells a species of colonial spider that has been evolving a mind of a very different kind. The forests are dense with their webs, which form an extended sense organ linking all the component parts of the colony. Later, these generations old and constantly rewoven tapestries become a kind of exported cognitive engine. The spiders do not think, but between them, the web they work on becomes a substitute mind, active when they move upon it and update it, 
falling to oblivion should they ever stop. And when the great tropical storms come to lash the equatorial forests, these weird mines are torn apart and die, and the spiders blindly weave fresh webs the next season until a new thinking being is born, knowing no continuity with what was lost. Um, that's a re- that's quite an extraordinary divorce. That's what I meant when I said that sometimes you divorce sentience from intelligence, mm. um, or at least from individual. Oh, well, yes, from sentience, I guess, and from individualism. Um, I wonder, um, uh, of these kinds of hive minds and networks, I, I can't think of, um, too many examples from the sci-fi that I know that at least immediately spring to mind. There's, of course, the very, very badly written, but quite fun, uh, my, um, use of the mycelial network in Star Trek Discovery. Um, I mean, I don't mean that the mycelial network itself is particularly badly written, but just Star Trek Discovery is trash. Oh, um, no. I, oh, I enjoy no, it nevertheless. It's my absolute favorite Star Trek. I will oh, uh, my not hear a word God. against it. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's I'm it. Gonna, am I now apostate? Do I get thrown off the podcast? <laughs> Um, no, I want you to defend that state, state, <laughs> statement. But first, I was going to say the other thing that comes to mind is Ursula Le Guin's um, short story, The Word for World is Forest, mm. uh, where the entire, they land on a planet, which is basically one organism. Um, but uh, yeah, now I think you, now you've voiced a truly controversial opinion, so I would like you to defend yourself if you can. <laughs> um, I mean, for, 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 so for me, purely as a science fiction fan, the Discovery series has a perfect balance of it's got some intriguing science fiction ideas. And I, I mean, I genuinely do love the whole uh, mycelial network because I was I was a bit disappointed we didn't get the tardigrade shoved into a Star Trek uniform and sitting in the bridge crew, um, which would have been um, my my perfect solution to the the problem they had there. Of course, um, you like it that there's <laughs> networks and there are also giant insects, yeah, or um, arthropods. Yeah, and I, I just it's it's got that balance between all of the you know the kind of the the cognitive ideas Star Trek and also it's got some nice character work and it's got the nice um. It's got a nice balance of action, and it just for me, it just ticks all the boxes really well. Gosh, well, that that is a very <laughs> surprising. That's one of the most surprising things a guest has ever said on this podcast. Um, what What are your other favorite sci-fi works and writers? And if this is a different, if these two answers are different. Um, which writer, which sci-fi writers have been the most influential on your own work? Um, the the first big influence on me um, has most certainly been uh, Diane Wynne Jones. Uh, she, I mean, weirdly enough, mostly her lesser-known books. So there's a book called Power of Three, and there's a book called Homeward Bounded, and they both. This is most. This is not so much a science thing, so much as a narrative structure thing. She plays a lot of games and reversals and, and and sort of perceptual switches with her readership that uh, is certainly wasn't common for writers writing for her normal age group at the time. And um, that was huge. I mean, sub- subsequent to that, the, I mean, a lot of the very, the uh, big idea stuff, I, I, if someone's especially work on um, fictional work on artificial intelligences, Justina Robson, is a phenomenal writer. Uh, I mean, some of her work, like Silver Screen, uh, is a really good look at artificial intelligence in relation to humanity. And more recently, she's had a novella out called Paper Hearts, which is that old paradigm of well, what would happen if you had the all-powerful artificial intelligence and people told it, well, we need you to solve all our problems, please. And how would that go? And it's a really, really thoughtful look at the... Um, uh, the process and the problems of that kind of sort of science fiction solution. I think it's the best, the best shot of it I've ever seen. Um, 
Beyond that, I, uh, I mean, I, my, amongst my current favorite writers, I really like, um, Becky Chambers with her Wayfarer series. And there is, there is some very, just the interaction between different species and the interaction between, um, sort of, uh, people of those species and artificial intelligences, uh, ships, computers are wonderful there. I mean, honestly, we, we've got a bit of a um, thing. We've got a bit of a golden age of really interesting um, artificial minds um, that we've probably not seen since um, since Ian Banks, who is obviously another great classic of the genre. So um, Gareth Powell in his Embers of War series and Anne Leckie in her Auxiliary Justice uh, are both a really interesting. Both give us really interesting looks into um, artificial minds. Why did you? Um, why did you personally uh, become a fiction writer rather than um, rather than uh, um, an evolutionary biologist or perhaps a science journalist or science communicator? Um, given the depth of your interest in biology, what is it that draws you to? Uh, writing fiction and what is it that fiction allows you to do that perhaps you couldn't do if you were writing uh, non-fiction prose or speculative philosophy or something of that kind well i mean the the the, the flippant answer is it's so much easier when you can make most of the stuff up uh, <laughs> which is probably selling myself a bit short because certainly for the harder science if i do I do my due diligence and I do my research, but I mean, honestly, it's just, I, it's the thing my mind does. You know, I, I do confabulate. I take in, I take in real world stuff. So for example, um, a researcher called Dr. Fiona Cross did some really fascinating um, experiments on the cognitive abilities of the Porsche labiata spider. So I read that and I think, well, what I would be really interested to think through the the thought experiment of what if that spider and its um in, frankly incredible cognitive abilities had been given the chance to really become a, a dominant force in the world. And that's where children of time come from. So the the opportunity to run those thought experiments rather than um, is to, you know, to take what is that other people are far better qualified to, um, to look at than I, and then take that next kind of, um, imaginative step. That's kind of what I live for, to be honest. That, that's very much the thing I, I seem to be good at doing. And it's the, certainly the thing I enjoy doing. Um, whereas, uh, I mean, lots of my, I mean, my wife, um, my wife is a published academic and that's a lot of, very, very rigorous work, getting everything to a certain format and a certain style and a obviously a level of accuracy. Whereas um, I feel I have a lot more fun writing fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I want to read a little passage. Um, this was one of my favorite worlds. This was one of my favorite alternative worlds that came up in The Doors of Eden. And um, it's just... Um, uh, um, I, there are times in the doors of Eden where I can see you just sort of playing with the reader's um, expectations with with um, set tropes and um, with kind of uh, in in some ways with tropes from sort of children's literature. Um, I notice coming up in the book. So you have, for example, a cockroach world um, in doors of e is described in doors of Eden and. It's every bit as sort of icky as um, as one would like it to be. Brought out my kind of inner <laughs> inner thirteen year old boy. Ooh, nasty, creepy crawlies. How how fun, you know? How disgusting and fun. Um, and one of the other places where you kind of play with that um, idea um, is uh, um, so you ha you have a um, a species of intelligent rats within the doors of Eden. Um, and it's always, the tone is always halfway between um, the, um, halfway between this, the serious and the absurd. Um, and it's uh, at one point, the, the, the rat's main scientist 
makes this extraordinary speech, but it's in his little high-pitched, squeaky voice at the end. He says, <laughs> may I present myself to you? I am Dr. Rat, um, which is just hilarious. Uh, here's an example of you playing, playing that, that kind of, um, that's, that sort of, um, a game of shifting between registers. Um, and this is a cat world, um, cat dominated world where the cats are helped by this sort of um, super uh, organism version of Toxoplasma gondii. Far more than the disputed effects of Toxoplasma gondii in your domestic pets, this infection burrows into the brains of its non-feline victims. It instills in them a deep adulation for the cats, their scent, the sight of them, their needs. Tribes of primates, far from becoming world-striding hominids, are merely the servants, and the cats have evolved to make use of them. Over time, the cats develop a culture of leisured aristocrats. They rule, preen, confabulate about the nature of the universe as they lie about in the shelters their creatures built for them. They develop their minds, and their aim is always to do less work than the generation before them. The most successful communities are those where not only the cats, but also the parasites have evolved, bringing more species into the fold to queue up their throats for the knife or settle at the cat's feet to make and serve and work. The cats eventually become aware of their invisible ally as their vicarious technology advances. At the height of their sophistication, perhaps half a million years ago, the cats held sway over a global empire countless small polities getting on because wars are too much like hard work. Meanwhile, feline scholars earn their credentials through the extended erudition of their scurrying packs of monkey minions. Their microbial science is exceptional, and they work hard at honing the efficacy of the little passenger, engineering it through trial and error until it can leap to just about any species they choose and stay ahead of any resistance it might encounter. Rather indolently, the great cats secure their hold on the world by having all of nature love and worship them. In ten million years, they pass from being at the mercy of the elements to inhabiting a genuine Eden where every beast is placed on earth for their convenience. They are there still, unchallenged rulers of everything they survey. There are no scientists as such anymore, though some still while away lazy hours and idle speculation. They make nothing, because anything they might conceive of is made for them. And at the first presentiment of privation, there is a world of species ready to give up comfort, time and life, so the cats can continue to prosper. Not a world you'd want to visit, in case you ended up at their feet, grooming their luxurious coats, and hoping you were too small a morsel to prove appetizing. Um, I'm looking accusatorily at uh, my cat, Frederick, who is on across on the bed right now <laughs> listening to this. And I am sure understanding it. He looks very smug. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's just such a, um, a lovely uh, kind of um, <laughs> sort of exaggeration of what cats are actually like in our, in our world <laughs> on our earth. Um, and this, uh, just the absurdity of the sort of image of this sybaritic, um, decadent, sort of late Roman Empire style society ruled over by cats. Um, I loved it. Um, and there are a lot of passages like that that take this, that are on, on take this kind of balance point between, uh, the humorous and the sinister. I guess that's not a question, is it? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that it's it's um, <clears throat> it is a particular mode that I I I I seem to keep coming back to, and I think it's a very nice balance. I think you get more you get more out of the humour because of the sinister, and you get more out of the sinister because of the human. So, just as purely as a writing technique, I think it 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 serves it serves double duty. You can get an awful lot of bang for your buck word wise by mm. by balancing those two things. Mm. Well, having read Children of Time when I was reading the 
um, the doors of Eden. All the time I was thinking, I have I have this sense in your novels all the time of, uh-oh, <laughs> things are going to go very wrong. Um, it's, um, there's something I was going to ask in relation to this. Uh, yes, I guess I'd like to know um, when and why you started writing fiction and whether you've always been drawn to fantasy and sci-fi um, or whether you've also written uh, more realist um, work and um, and yes, what your, I, I, I guess maybe you've partly answered this already, but um, why it is that you're so especially drawn to that genre and if you think that that also brings any disadvantages for you as a writer. Um, I mean, I... I've never. It's always it's always been science fiction and fantasy for me. It was very much what I read. Uh, it was what I was interested in. And honestly, as a writer, the things I want to do, um, the, the worlds I want to create, you couldn't do in any other genre. I I want to be able to kind of um, set the axioms of my uh, of my world from the beginning. It is it's the world creation that is very much the thing that interests me most. So, um, you know, throwing together the particular either fantastical or science fictional um, rules and axioms and conditions I want to play with and then just letting the experiment run and seeing where it goes, which you, you honestly can't do in, in other genres uh, because you're always going to be constrained with how things are or how things were or the, the those particular conventions, which mean you you just can't let your imagination run in the same way so there was really there's really never any question about what sort of uh work i would be writing um and yeah i mean i i'm just trying to think i don't think i've written anything that is entirely free of fantastical elements i've certainly you know there are more in some and less in others and there's more sort of hard science in some and less than others, which is obviously its own sort of set of constraints. But writing um, writing stuff that's set entirely in, in the real world, sort of modern day, doesn't interest me. And although writing stuff set entirely in, say, say a real world historical period interests me, that's an awful lot of research. And I'm although I've got a fairly broad sort of historical education. I certainly don't have the kind of in-depth historical ed- education I'd need. In fact, I mean, I, there, there is actually a project I'm kicking about at the moment, which would require, although it's, although it's a fantasy, it would be a historically set fantasy. And so I would have to basically go and really seriously thrash out the place and time I wanted to set it in. And that's a lot of work <laughs> for a book. Um, it's, I, I will certainly do it, but I, I'm kind of aware I kind of, I need to set aside, I, big old chunk of time to get myself up to speed to the level of detail I'd need to write a book in that setting. Yeah, indeed. Although there's clearly a lot of research that has gone into your uh, sci-fi books. So, I mean, th- these are um, the ones that I've read, at least, are not space opera in the sense that something like Star Wars seems to require zero research, um, which is why, you know, it's it's just an epic, it's just epic narrative. I feel that your books, um, I don't know if Neil deGrasse Tyson has ever read or commented on your, on your books. Um, but I think that your books are quite possibly Neil deGrasse Tyson proof in a way that, <laughs> say, <laughs> Star Wars is not. Um, I remember his posting about that little round cre- android creature that's in the more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Trek ones that rolls around, uh, rolls along the sand, um, on Tatooine or whatever desert planet it is. Um, and, uh, I, Neil wrote a kind of Twitter thread about how the physics of this could not possibly work. Um, and I just, I think he would, would be much more hard pressed. You do, you seem to exercise a, there's a certain, care that I know. So even when you are describing your fantasy of this extraordinary version of um, of the 
parasite, the toxo, toxoplasmosis gondii um, parasite in cats, you say, unlike the question, uh, unlike the questionable or disputed effects, etc. Mm-hmm. And that little word imme- was immediately massively comforting to me. <laughs> <laughs> like this guy has has is not being lazy um so i i i mean i don't i don't particularly buy your idea that it's less work but i guess it's work of a kind that you are more is feels less like work to you because it's more enjoyable so there's there's two types of research uh or, or that's what it seems to me there's so the science research i i've done um where you have a specific thing that you are, you need to bottom out a, a specific um, idea that you say, well, how would this work? And generally, you can find someone and you can ask them very uh, discreet questions saying, you know, I need to do this. What is the, um, what are the ramifications? Uh, so, for example, in Children of Ruin, I'm dealing with spaceships filled with water. So I, I spoke to a ship engineer uh, called Nick Bradbeer, and he basically clued me up on, well, this is the problem. You know, you'd have these problems with momentum and inertia, and you wouldn't have these other problems. And here, and you'd have different problems if some of it was air and some of it was water than if it was all water and all of that sort of thing. And that's generally fairly easy to bottom out because the you know, the internet is there with the source, and because people who know about these things are usually very very happy to um, to enlighten you. The second part is things like, uh, and this is something I ran into with. Um, Doors of Eden, because Doors of Eden, a lot of it is set in the real world in the modern day, which means there are all sorts of tiny living details, even just modern day details, which are you can't just look up because no one ever mentions them. Mm-hmm. So I, I mm-hmm. had to spend a, a week basically walking around London and going to places in London just to get proper reference points for the scenes that I was going to set in those locations. A bit like if I, if I was scouting out places for a, a film, almost. Um, mm-hmm. And it's even worse, of course, if you're dealing with something. Uh, so, the book I'm kicking around will be set in um, pre revolution Russia about 1905. You're, because I've been writing about characters who are living in that place and time, all those little details of life that are not going to be like the little details of my life um, are things that I kind of have to immerse myself in so that I can just write how they go about their everyday life. So it's very easy to work out, well, right, when was the um, when did the revolution happen? What were the causes of the, fir- the First World War? But things like, well, how do you get about? Um, how do you travel when you're in Moscow? Um, what sort of, how does news get from one place to another? All these tiny things that almost nobody writes down. And that's the, that's the heavy burden of research that I find, you know, it, that you really have to kind of build a lot of extra time in for. Because it's not one question, it's, and you don't know what you don't know. Mm, the fine-grained sort of texture of things. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that is the most, um, that's some of the most difficult stuff to get hold of. And also, um, it it's, that is what really makes the, makes historical novels, for example, come to life. Um, that's what makes a novel like, um, um, oh God, um, this is what happens when you're in your fifties. Um, I have forgotten what the name of this, what the, the name of this famous trilogy, oh, Wolf Hall. Mm. Uh, what makes the Wolf Hall trilogy novels so immersive is the richness of the kind of day-to-day detail, the way that textiles felt against the body and the way that things tasted and smelled and, and sounded. And one of the, problems also is striking a balance between describing those things vividly and describing those things with a kind of endowing the characters with a sort of sensitivity to and self-consciousness about those details that they simply wouldn't have had if they were living in that world. Yes, yes. I mean, and also there are also the, the what I suspect is a, a universal temptation for writers who have done their research to make absolutely sure their readers are aware of how much research they have done. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be fought at every turn. And it's a really, it's a matter of learn as much as you can and then put as little of it as possible on the page. And that's a real balancing act. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I'm returning to my 
fav- my favorite sci-fi novelist, Ursula Le Guin. Mm. Um, I, um, I'm rereading The Left Hand of Darkness at the moment, but I'm reading it loud to my boyfriend. And, um, it's just amazing how, how, how few details there are of that world, of the world of Gethin, the fictional planet on which the novel is set. And yet how absolutely vividly imagined it feels. Um, but actually we're told, we're told, oh, oh, we're, we're told only very, very few things. Um, but the reader's imagination supplies the rest. It's choosing which details also to include and which not to include. That must be one of the tricks of it, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and what, this is one of the things I tend to um, rely very much on my editors for, because frankly, I, I write long and I will, given the opportunity, just go on about stuff just to show how the world fits together. And that's the things my editors tend to uh, prune and take out. Well, yes, having worked as an editor a lot myself, but I, I, uh, I sympathize with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think um, many writers when they when their work is first edited, they think it's going to be things are going to be added to it to make it better or sort of changed to make it better. But it's mostly topiary. It's mostly like getting the shears out and trimming off, sticking out branches and Mm -hmm. stuff and deadheading. Um, there were a couple of questions uh, for you um, from Twitch. I'm going to see if any of them um, haven't really been answered and make sense to ask. There are a lot of people asking whether there are going to be more uh, books in the Children of Time uh, series, uh, whether that's going to become a series. Um, so, yes, um, there's um, the third book of that is actually currently um Sort of out on submission with um, with my with the same publisher of the previous of the previous two. Uh, the working title is Children of Memory, although whether I get to keep that title is anyone's guess from past experience. Um, so yes, there will be at least uh, one more book in that in that line. Mm-hmm. Do you? Um, so somebody else asked in relation to that wh- how you feel about um, titles being uh, changed. So many of your titles, um, I think you've said elsewhere, were not your original titles, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the way I feel about it is sort of grim acceptance by now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it, it's one of those, the you know, the title, much like the cover, is something that people will absolutely see and judge the book on before they get to any of the contents. And right. there are certainly, uh, there are increasingly times when my idea of what what the book should be called and the publisher's idea of what they would prefer it to be called so that people would actually read the thing um, are at variance. Um, <clears throat> possibly the, the most extreme version of this is Doors of Eden, which uh, all the way through its writing pr- process was called The Brain Garden. And the publishers were probably right not to let me get away with it. <laughs> yes, Doors of Eden is quite a misleading title um, in, a, in a sense um, because it's not... Um, there's there's really nothing um paradisical in that novel um and it makes it yes it makes it seem much more um it gives it a kind of a, a kind of moral valence that the book itself doesn't have but yeah <laughs> um i um i guess one one other thing that um someone asked uh was how do you put yourself in the metaphorical shoes of a hive mind to speak from its perspective? Um, the, the, the ability to take on the mantle of, um, of non-human perspectives up to and including, um, distributed intelligences like, um, well, there are, I mean, we've discussed a variety of them in the, um, in the podcast so far. It, it effectively just seems to be something that I can do. And I suspect a lot of it comes out of, um, I've got quite a long history of playing role-playing games and running role-playing games. And to do that, you tend to pick up and put down a lot of characters, many of which can be very, um, very non-human. And that gives you, I think, a certain skill set as far as kind of being able to don, a, don 
what I almost feel, think of as a filter that any particular creature might sort of perceive the world through. Um, I'm very good at just getting into that almost like a um, sort of a personal zeitgeist. This is probably not really the right word, but um, just a particular a mental construct, which then creates the right kind of um, sense and feel and um, worldview of whatever I'm writing from. Mm, that's interesting. I've personally never played any computer games. Well, this this is also this is not not computer games. I think are not are not so good for it. This is very much kind of face to face around a table sort of. Play, oh uh, right, play. okay. Um, I obviously don't know what role playing games are. I I'm probably the only person who doesn't know. But indulge me and tell me what 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 does it mean? What so do they... I mean, it's the I'm, so I'm talking uh, Dungeons and Dragons sort of things. Mm-hmm. So you have one player who's effectively standing in for the world and most people in it, and you have a group of other players who are each have one character that they're playing and there are some dice and some rules but mostly it's to do with kind of creating a story cooperatively with um the world's player throwing situations and problems at the others and the others kind of um acting as their characters to solve them but one of the, so one of the things you get um for a writer one of the very useful things you get from being the player in charge of the world is you have to make a world and it has to be very robust because the other players are going to try and break it and you also get to be everyone in that world as and when they're required. So you become very adept at just skipping from viewpoint to viewpoint and putting on very different viewpoints in quick succession. So it does, weirdly enough, as a hobby, it teaches quite a useful little um, writer's toolkit. Oh, yeah. I ha- oh, great. Thank you. Um, Adrian, is there anything that you have wanted to talk about that I haven't given you a chance to talk about? No, I think we, um, I mean, I, if I could just drop a couple of references in for books that haven't been mentioned, but have been, have had their topics touched on. Um, so art, art, real world problematic artificial intelligence is something I deal with in my novella Firewalkers. Um, and that kind of relates to the way I was talking about it earlier on. Uh, but also, I think uh, if we're talking about distributed intelligences, I've got to mention bees from Dogs of War. Dogs of War is actually one of my, think, from my, from my own perspective, one of my finest books. Um, just you know, my my personal favourite amongst my own work, um, and it's about uplifted um, bioengineered animals being used as initially as soldiers, and it's also therefore about things like the rights of artificial intelligences, the rights of um, artificial creatures how we the uses to which we might put them and you know how that kind of that human element can cause problems because in this case they're being used to do terrible terrible things in wars because you can always get rid of them uh, and they can you can always sort of distance yourself from them but obviously from the point of view of the creatures themselves this isn't entirely satisfactory and one of the um one of the uh the soldiers in the main unit is about is a and they are they are one of my particular favorite kind of distributed intelligences mm. so is that your which is your favorite of your novels i think it, it is dogs of war i mean it has a sequel out um as of uh, earlier this year called bearhead as well um but it's it's i think that's some of my my absolute finest science fiction work great thank you um would you like to read another passage to, to end well I, I had a little i had a, sh- a shortish passage from um children of time as we've not read anything from it oh yes please um unfortunately i don't have my copy to hand which is why i'm not reading from that one but yes please do so in children of time we have a world um that for a variety of reasons dealt with in the first chapter or so of the book um there is a species of spider which has become infected with a, a sort of an evolutionary virus that's trying to force evolve it um, into something um, kind of more intellectually sophisticated. And we're now joining them after some considerable period of um, sort of millennia of this going on. Um, so we started off, we had an earlier section with a basic, uh, with a, a jumping spider describing how they kind of are effectively now and this is how they end up after a while. So, the name she answers to 
has both a simple and a complex form. The simple form comprises a series of telegraphed gestures, a precise motion of the palps conveying a limited amount of information. The longer form incorporates a backing of stamping and shivering to add a subtle vibrational subtext to that crude flag-waving, varying with mood and tense and whether she speaks to a dominant or submissive female or to a male. The nanovirus has been busy doing what it can with unexpected material. She is the result of generations of directed mutation. Her presence mute witness for all those failures who never bred. Call her Portia. To travel the forest is to travel the high roads, branch to branch, each tree a world in miniature, crossing where the branches touch, now upside down, now right side up, scaling vertical trunks, then leaping where the branches give out, training a lifeline and trusting to the eye and the mind to calculate distance and angle. Portia creeps forwards, just judging distances. Her branch just out juts out into the void and she spends a careful minute considering whether she can make the jump to the next before deciding she cannot. Above her, the canopy fades out into a network of twigs that cannot possibly bear her weight. Portia is far larger than her tiny ancestress, half a metre from fangs to spinnerets, an arachnophobe's nightmare. The restraining support of her exoskeleton is aided by an expansion of the cartilage endoskeleton that her ancestors evolved to aid in muscle attachment, and some of those muscles now expand and contract her abdomen, drawing air actively over her book lungs, rather than simply taking in oxygen through passive osmosis. Her body is deeper in order to house the brain that bulks out its underside. Her metabolism is more efficient too, able to regulate her temperature in a limited kind of way, and capable of sustained activity that would have worn out her cold-blooded forebears. Below is the forest floor, no place to be crossed lightly. There are larger predators than Portia abroad, and, although she is confident in her ability to outthink them, it would involve lost time, and dusk is close. She scans their surroundings and considers her options. She has the excellent eyesight of the tiny huntress that she has evolved from, but without the limited field of view that small size inevitably imposes. The great dark orbs of her principal eyes are considerably larger than those of any human. Her main eyes are fixed in her head body. Mobile retinas within allow a little sideways movement, and the black globes of her peripheral organs give her a grainy view of her surroundings on all sides. If she wants to truly look back at her companions with any acuity, though, she must turn her whole body. Bianca, the other female, is still behind at the trunk, watching Portia and ready, willing to trust her judgement. Bianca is larger than Portia, but Portia leads, because size and strength have not been their species' most prized assets for a very long time. The third of their party, the male, is lower than Bianca, his legs spread out for balance as, she, as he hangs on the tree, looking downwards. Possibly he thinks he's keeping watch, but Portia feels he's probably just letting his mind wander. Too bad she needs him. He's smaller than she, he can jump further and trust to more slender branches. The three of them are out of their territory by fifty days. They're a species given to curiosity, the same ability that allowed their tiny ancestress to create a mental map of their environs has become the ability to imagine, to ask what is beyond the forest. Portia's people are born explorers. Thank you so much. That's a lovely note to end on. I will um, put all the references and um, to where to find your work, etc., in the show notes, as usual. Thank you so much for joining me, Adrian. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.